Everyone I spoke to knew they were lucky to be there and really appreciated the work that they were given the opportunity to do and took it very seriously. They just didn't happen to think that they should need to be groped in the course of doing that work. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm Sarah Wildman, FP's print editor, and you're listening to The ER. Joining me in our Washington studio today is Emily Tamkin, our FP embassies reporter. And also joining us is Jenna Benyehuda, founder of the Women's Foreign Policy Network and a national security professional who spent 12 years at the State Department. Jenna's last assignment was as the senior military advisor to the Bureau of Western Hemisphere Affairs. In her long career at State, Jenna also developed programming for Secretary of State Hillary Clinton and intelligence briefings for Secretary of State Colin Powell. Thanks for joining me, both of you. Thank you. Thanks. As you both know well, since October of last year, women in this country and around the world have been taking stock and making noise, speaking out about sexual harassment and assault, often sharing stories that had gone long untold. Beginning with the Harvey Weinstein harassment and abuse scandals, wave after wave of narratives have taken on and taken down men in every industry from Hollywood to Congress, newsrooms to Silicon Valley. On March 5th, Foreign Policy published a piece written by Emily Temkin and FP reporter Robbie Gramer detailing a persistent and insidious culture of secrecy and denial within the State Department regarding claims of sexual harassment and abuse. Emily and Robbie talked to current and former State Department officials who, and now I'm quoting, quote, describe a culture in which patriotism and pursuit of the diplomatic mission meant ignoring or downplaying complaints of harassment. The officials describe a workplace in which rank and reputation were privileged over the well-being of State Department employees. Their story recounts sexual harassment, assault, bullying, and even rape inside an institution which has been, like so, so many others, long dominated by men. This week has actually been a week of news of the State Department on the same subject. On March 1st, Ambassador Leslie Bassett described an unwanted sexual advance on her first tour of duty in Nicaragua in the Foreign Service Journal. Bassett was shunned after she rebuffed a foreign service officer who harassed her, she wrote for the magazine, but she also noted that at the time she told no one of what had taken place. Now she writes, quote, the problem of sexual harassment and even assault is persistent. It is real and it needs to be addressed. We can't, she continued, wait any longer to make meaningful change. Janet, back in November, you co-authored an open letter signed by over 200 American women working in national security titled hashtag MeTooNotSec. The letters to the signatories were themselves survivors of sexual harassment or assault or knew someone who had been. Can you talk to us a little bit about how the letter came about? And that letter didn't just call it abuse. It asked for changes. Can you describe what those changes were and how doable they are and what's happened since? Sure. Well, thanks for having me. So, you know, as we watched the events of the past fall unravel and we watched women come forward in Silicon Valley and women come forward uh, in Hollywood, we felt like it was important to kind of plant a flag on this issue for the national security community. Uh, So together with my co-author and friend, Ambassador Nina Hashigian, we put pen to paper and thought we, we really needed to come out and do a couple of things. Uh, one of those things, first and foremost, was to show solidarity with women across industries uh, to say that we recognize the struggles that they are facing and also that this is this is really industry agnostic, that there were pretty grievous issues happening that were very similar uh, within our own professional workplace environments. But in doing so, we also wanted to get to those elements about the national security community that make this a, a really thorny and hard issue to solve. And so 
in the letter, we did a couple of things. Uh, we came out wanting to be proactive and, and call attention and really try to paint a path forward. We put out five recommendations, among which included uh, requiring exit interviews. When people leave service, why are they leaving? Not just for women, but for men too. What are the circumstances surrounding those departures so that we can start to get to, this is one of our next points, good data. Publishing data, getting good numbers, getting some real fidelity to the gr the gravity and the, the depth and breadth of the problem. We hear anecdotally and certainly continue to hear in the aftermath of the letters publication how many women have been impacted by these kinds of experiences, but attempts to get a real handle on the numbers have come up short. So data transparency is something that we've really pushed for. And also with that, recognizing the difficulty that women face in coming forward, knowing that the data that is there is really underrepresentative of the broader problem, then creating channels in which women can come forward without fear of retaliation or retribution. Almost like a dissent channel for sexual harassment. Well, I don't know what form that will take. And I think, you know, there are certainly... There are lots of schools of thought on this. I think uh, one of the things that we've seen is that industries do need to identify solutions that work for their own particular cultures. So we need to identify ways for people to come forward, whether they are on an unaccompanied assignment in a really high threat environment where the only person with whom they might be able to address this particular kind of incident is a superior with whom they also are in proximate living spaces, right? That's one end of the spectrum to a broader, more typical workplace office environment. Uh, certainly within the intelligence community, and we really wanted to draw attention to this, how do you how do you provide that burden of proof? You can't bring a cell phone into a skiff, right? You can't have any kind of recording devices. You can't take pictures. Often the circumstances of your own conversations aren't those which you could then relay mm -hmm. uh, lawfully. So, you know, part of why we wanted to call attention to this in the national security community was really to help expose this issue, but also recognize that there are some, some elements that are universal, but some of these solutions are going to be unique to this particular industry. Emily, you tried to dig in on some details. The letter was broad, necessarily so, and even these examples are, are relatively broad. But Emily, you actually spoke to a number of women, and, and I know, Jenna, since the letter came out, more and more people have come forward to you. Can you talk a little bit about why so many people requested anonymity and, and talk a little bit about the experiences that you heard and, and how it was to do those interviews? Mm -hmm. So we spoke to um, over a dozen women. I think the total came to, to 15 between Robbie, my co-author, and myself, um, the women, including those who had left the State Department, were worried for their own careers. I think it, it's, it's as simple as that, right? That by addressing the problem, even to improve the situation and the circumstances under which women and men work at the Department of State, um, that coming forward would would tarnish their professional reputations. What we were looking to do with this piece was look at what the policies and processes for reporting sexual harassment and assault were. And the ways in which they're they're failing, right? So, for example, the department says that they have a consistent policy through which you can go to report sexual harassment. But in reality, 
as Jenna said, there you know there are posts. People are not all in the same place for state. They're all over the world. Posts vary by size. And a lot of it is left up to the supervisor who's there, right? So what you do while a sexual harassment investigation is underway varies from post to post. Similarly, although there's a mandatory reporting requirement, whether or not things are reported is left up to the supervisor. Like not every supervisor meets the mandatory reporting requirement. And so sexual harassment just goes unhandled, undealt with, unreported. And then we wanted to look at, so let's say it is reported what happens to the woman or man while the investigation is underway. Are they given uh, mental health or psychiatric support? Many of the women to whom we spoke said no. What happens to the alleged uh, harasser or assaulter? In many cases, the answer to that is nothing. In some cases, again, depending on who is supervising at various posts, perhaps that person is moved from post to post, which does not necessarily solve the problem. And then we also wanted to look at, since the letter has come out, since the Me Too movement, what is the State Department doing? Do people believe those efforts are sincere? And are the changes that the State Department is making, are those going to get to the heart of why policies and processes are not followed, are not enforced, and why there is still a culture of sexual harassment at state? So I want you both to kind of look at this, and I'll turn to Jenna again, and look at this question of isolation. And it gets back to these questions of what's unique about tackling this in the State Department. And as you said, it is industry agnostic. I like that phrase. But obviously, there are some really unique scenarios here, some of geographies, and some of which have to do with national security itself. So when women have come forward in the past, what what's happened for them? And, and what happens to someone who's in the field and has to handle this? And have, you know, most women decided not to report it as a result? Well, so I think there are a real range of experiences, right? And part of the impetus to write this letter was that we all knew somebody. And that and that's what we point to in this letter. It's not just that, you know, many of the people who signed the letter have had these experiences directly. But we couldn't find a single woman out there who either hadn't experienced it herself or knew somebody who had. So it's so pervasive. And with that, obviously, a range of experiences. I have a former colleague and friend who's still in the Foreign Service who was on an unaccompanied post in a conflict zone where the only person to whom she could report this activity was the perpetrator of that activity, who was also her rating official on an assignment that was only one year in duration. And as your piece points out, the process, once you even get to that point, can often take a year and a half right. or longer. Right. So these are people's lives. A year and a half is an unbearable amount of time to continue to have to wait on something to be resolved, especially while you're continuing to work alongside somebody. But the other piece, too, for people in Washington, we know how important corridor reputation is and all of this. Nobody wants to be labeled as a troublemaker here. And this is what we keep coming back to. Women just want to do their work. <laughs> there are a lot of really serious, complex problems that we're all facing right now, and women would really like to get back to solving them. But one of the things that happens is that this kind of constant churn of comments and remarks, and this is why we, we painted this spectrum in the letter, was acknowledging that on the, on the one end you have these more 
egregious forms of assault and harassment, but that that exists along a spectrum in a permissive environment that really starts with being interrupted, with being shut out of meetings, with being talked over. And we know that that's born out of an imbalance of power. And so I do think that while these policies are important, the processes need to improve, these are symptoms of power imbalances that ultimately, I think, will only be rectified when we see more parity in the number of women in senior leadership positions throughout the department. It's interesting because I actually think this is where there's the most overlap between industries, yes. right? I mean, you see this again and again, especially for junior staffers, but it's universal, right? It's not simply your first years in an industry like journalism, but there's a certain tolerance threshold, right? Mm-hmm. Which type of touch are you going to actually say something about? Mm-hmm. You know, if a supervisor or if in journalism, you may be you may be harassed by someone you're working with or even a subject of your story. Right. Where do you draw the line when someone starts to massage your neck, for mm-hmm. example, or makes a comment, you know, that you look particular, you know, how, how do you draw those lines? And I think that these overlaps are what, you know, there's tremendous resonance Absolutely. Here. And I think, th- I mean, one thing that I certainly heard a lot in reporting this piece was that people were discouraged from reporting what supervisors or colleagues felt were more minor incidences um, because, or incidents, excuse me, because it was sort of felt, well, you have such a bright career ahead of you or you're such a star. Don't risk it for for coming forward for this, which raises the question, um, why is coming forward to say that somebody is making inappropriate, unwanted comments or, or massaging your neck, right? Why would that threaten your career? Unless, of course, your career was built on your reputation and you got your next post based on your reputation and an assignments based on reputation and court of reputation sort of dictated so much of what you did. Yeah, we, we just have to get away from this place where Weinstein levels of abuse are what – like that that's the threshold. You know, we you can't <laughs> – I mean, that's insane to have – serial rape and complex web of informants. And that's the threshold at which you're allowed to say something's going on here. We have to do away with that because what happens is that women leave and they don't advance and they're silenced and they're shut out. And so, you know, we see, for example, that the Foreign Service entrants are 50-50 men and women and have been for some time now. But senior leadership is 30% female. What happens to 30, you know, the 20% of women? They're not becoming less competent the longer they're in these roles. And they're not all going home to stay home with their kids. Something's happening. And part of this request for data is we want to know where are the women why aren't they getting promoted? What is the source of that when they're coming in at equal levels of competence? And are women leaving because they're tired of operating in an, in an office environment that's toxic? Well, one of the things that Emily notes is that in performance reviews, a harassment allegation does not have to be tacked on to the alleged perpetrator. And so therefore, a story may not pass through and doesn't have the same impact on an alleged perpetrator as it does on the uh, on the accuser. Right. So if you come forward, you carry forth the reputation of somebody who, you know, who makes trouble, who isn't putting the mission first, who who is, who is you know, I, I don't know, too selfish to be a good patriot serving in the Foreign Service, whereas you're the person you, whom you're accusing, none of that necessarily has to move forward. 
I wonder, too, how much plays a role, and, and I think, again, there's another overlap with journalism, of of being able to, quote unquote, roll with it. Mm-hmm. You know, you're you're supposed to be someone who can be in a conflict zone, who can be in uncomfortable circumstances, who doesn't need to, who doesn't mind getting hands dirty and, and being in the trenches. And somehow, by reporting abuse that appears, quote unquote, minor, and I think it's a really good point to say that the Weinstein level of abuse is so ridiculously far out. And it's horrific and mm-hmm. and, and unassailably so. Mm-hmm. But what it does is diminish a, a toxic culture, mm-hmm. which creates an environment that women can't tolerate over time because it, it wears away. So the question, though, is, too, is how much of that sense of, well, you just can't hang with it right. plays a role in the State Department? I think that's very real. And, you know, one of the things that this movement has done, and, and Rosa Brooks has written beautifully about this for FP, is that it's really caused so many of us to reflect back on our own lives and unpack those moments that we had shelved away for so long or disregarded as the way things are or, you know, boys will be boys or all of these various shorthands that women develop for themselves to normalize situations and say, actually, this is okay, and I can continue to move forward in this environment. And Rosa recounts rather quite eloquently her own uh, process of those stories Mm -hmm. resurfacing. And even in my own thinking on this over the last few months, have reflected back on moments I'd long since forgotten as an as an intel briefer when I was 22 years old you know I'd prepare this big intel brief for a bunch of senior officials all of whom were men and I sat as a fly on the wall to their ongoing discussions about who was most attractive in the office who they thought they should get drinks with I mean all of these things that at the time I just thought Keep your head down, Jenna. Look at your paper. It's just it's one of those things that you look back on and you go, you know, that's that's not OK. It's not OK. And it and it shouldn't take these really serious, uh, intense experiences. I mean, rape can't be the threshold. Right. I mean, these really serious levels of abuse can't be what is then acceptable as a way uh, to mm-hmm. come forward. This episode is brought to you by Experian. Staying in shape isn't easy, except when it comes to your credit. Keep it strong with Experian Boost. It's the only way to raise your FICO score instantly and for free. And better credit scores can help you save money in lots of ways, like lower interest rates. Go to Experian.com boost or download the Experian app to get started. Results may vary. Visit Experian.com for details. I think another similarity that that speaks to that is that in or something that I was reminded of that you hear a lot in journalism as I conducted these interviews was that the the women were told time and again well you're lucky to be here right these are these are highly coveted positions it is very competitive and you're lucky to be in the room and if you don't want to sit here and put up with men ranking right. women's attractiveness well we can find somebody who will but I think what I would want people to understand is that everyone I spoke to knew they were lucky to be there, right, and really appreciated the work that they were given the opportunity to do and took it very seriously. Um, They just didn't happen to think that they should need to be groped in the course of doing that work. Right. And I I, I mean – not to say that no man has ever experienced sexual harassment, because of course that's not the case. There are men right. who have experienced sexual harassment. But the preponderance of these stories are women's stories. And 
no one feels, it's not as though women are feeling less lucky than their male counterparts, but are they having to experience the same thing? I wonder, the reporting at state, though, did go up from 2016 to 2017 from 365 reports to 483. Why do you think that might have been? You know, the numbers get squishy on this stuff. It's hard to know whether or not there were more incidents, which is very possible. It's hard to know, especially as as we've seen throughout the years, the number of unaccompanied assignments are higher. I bet if somebody did some good digging, they would find that unaccompanied posts are hotbeds for this kind of abuse for a lot of reasons. So maybe that's part of it. Maybe people do feel emboldened to come forward. I think one of the bigger questions is, what do the backlogs look like? And what does the average wait time look like? I'd love to know that. I'd love to know for every case, how many, you know, what's the average caseload of somebody who's receiving these complaints? And what's the average time it takes to resolve one of these issues? Because then I think we will begin to see whether or not the system can start working. Women are not going to come forward if they feel that they will be retaliated against, that they will suffer negative career repercussions. And also, more blandly, women aren't going to come forward and spend all of the time and attention documenting these abuses if they have no reasonable expectation of things ever being resolved. Do you think state is handling it differently now? I, I know that there have been some sort of nice buzzwords out of State Department spokespeople and even from Secretary of State Tillerson, but are they making it a priority or is it just words? I think that's the big question. We did see uh, the department issue its existing policy guidance on the matter, I think within 24 hours of the letter's mm-hmm. publication. I don't ever recall having seen in my 12 years there you know, receiving any kind of official guidance on sexual harassment. So I think they stood up and took notice on that point. We know that trainings are forthcoming. There have been a series of public remarks made on this. It remains to be seen. We do know that state has been sitting on uh, a response to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee January 17th letter in which 10 Democratic senators from minority staff uh, have requested in response to this letter a series of information requests as part of their oversight responsibilities. Neither state nor USAID, to my knowledge, have replied. Senator Jean Shaheen, just last week on the record of the Council on Foreign Relations, indicated that they had not received uh, a response on this. I hope one is forthcoming. Some of this will take time. Uh, changing culture takes some time. Building trust takes some time. But we also know what it looks like when government really wants to tackle Mm -hmm. an issue. I have been at the department during moments when WikiLeaks broke. It became my job for four months to manage the fallout of WikiLeaks. We know that there are task forces formed. We know what it looks like when there is urgency surrounding an issue. I'm not sure that we've gotten to that place. But I think the wheels are starting to turn. We've seen far less than that from the Pentagon, which has maintained its zero tolerance policy as the answer and response to all of this. So I certainly hope that state and aid 
come back and respond to the letter. I hope we have additional conversations with them about this. This is really an opportunity for them to retain great talent. You know, this is often overlooked as a, this is a problem for women. Sure, it's a problem for women, but it's a problem for our country when we have thousands and thousands of people who are not living up to their potential and able to contribute their talents to solving hard problems. Mm -hmm. And that's why I say women's security is national security. And at a time when we're facing all these hard problems, you have talent walking out the door because they have options and they will go elsewhere. And that's bad policy. It's not only the right thing to do, it's the smart thing to do. It's also economically smarter. I mean, given how much these women, most of them have gone through extensive training, linguistic and otherwise, it's, I mean, it's a tremendous drain. What do you think it will take to have women go on the record? Do you think it's a community that won't see that be one of the driving forces? You know, I think women in this need some social proof, right? This is a, a concept that psychologists use to talk about this willingness to come forward. Women need to know that their efforts will not hurt them and that they will not be done in vain. So women are already juggling busy lives and jobs. These are not clock in, clock out, nine to five jobs. These are 24-7 jobs in many cases. And then to decide to add to that the rigorous and extensive and laborious and often very financially Mm -hmm. and professionally costly added piece of documenting an allegation, you know, the burden of doing so is very high. And if women feel like it's going to come back on them, or it's going to drain them of their financial independence, and it's going to hurt their careers, we have to change that. I think it's difficult. And I want to turn back to Emily for a moment. There is also the psychological toll. It's terrifying the idea of outing yourself. And it's also terrifying the unknown of what will happen after you do so. And and again, as you said, if it is in vain, what then? And if it has repercussions, what then? And if those repercussions are not good ones, if, the, you know, if it leads to retaliation, if it leads to a demotion in some way or a lateral move that you didn't request, there's all sorts of ways in which you can imagine all the negative scenarios and none of the positive. Sure. Emily, one of the things you looked at a little bit was mm-hmm. that there had been no mental health follow-up. Can you give us just a small sense of what the steps are towards reporting and what happens afterwards in terms of benefiting the woman who comes forward as opposed to protecting state? Right. So there's an Office of Civil Rights at state. You can file an EEO complaint with them, which is, as Jenna said, a laborious and it also a very time-consuming process. We quote one woman who, between filing her complaint and getting a judge assigned to it, that alone was 16 months. Even if you choose not to do that and there's an investigation into harassment, it can take weeks, months, or years while that internal investigation takes place. And then it's over to um, human resources, which, um, you know, it's not always clear to people exactly to whom they should report it in the first place. Not every post has a, an assigned EEO counselor or an assigned human rights unit. Um, again, not every supervisor actually follows the mandatory reporting requirement. And the way in which the investigation is conducted varies from from place to place. What happens to the accused while the investigation is underway varies from place to place. And what um, – and in terms of, I mean, mental health support, uh, it, it, you know, one woman who – 
um, says that she was raped by a, a contractor, was told by a state-employed psychiatrist when she asked to move apartments, why do you think we owe you anything? And, and to be clear, mental health support is not only about – it wasn't only pointed out to us that it's lacking for women who come forward. It's also just lacking in general, right? Again, this idea of patriotism and resilience and you're lucky to be there. Um, but that means that people are going all over the world and working very closely with other people when they haven't necessarily received the psychiatric help that they need. And the final piece of this is that very often women go through all of this, right? They report. There's an investigation where, especially at smaller posts, it's quite clear who uh, – you know, despite everyone's best efforts, perhaps it's quite clear who came forward and who is being investigated, and they're still expected to work together, just because it's it becomes obvious in the case of the investigation. And then after all of that, nothing happens except that you people now know that you reported. But you know, maybe maybe the accused was moved to a different post to do this elsewhere. Maybe he was sent away for two weeks and then comes back um, and was sort of like put in timeout in Foggy Bottom. I spoke to a lawyer based in D.C. named Lynn Barnabé for this piece, and she basically said what matters is whether your policies are enforced. And so to answer your previous point, I think perhaps once state puts more of a, uh, a focus on enforcement of policies, which is not to say that every accused person is, is punished, right, but it, that, that the policies as they are written are enforced, which is not something that state, it, to my knowledge, has focused on in the in the wake of the NATSEC Me Too open letter, right? They've talked about adding mandatory trainings. They've talked about how there's zero tolerance. They've said that they don't tolerate retaliation. But none of that is about what actually happens to you if you right. do. Right? It's sort of like we're asking you to please stop sexually harassing people. I don't know that that's going to get women to come on the record. Do you think, Jenna, and, and we're coming close to time, do you think that I mean, the weight of the signatories is obviously helpful, and there is some shelter in in the sort of clause that they've either either experienced or know someone who's experienced sexual harassment or assault. And we are seeing a few more high-profile women come forward, ambassadors, obviously. What What is the network doing now? How involved are you with each other, and how much are you continuing to talk about this? And how much do you think this is a question of kind of repositioning the idea of what is patriotic and what is good for the country, which ultimately is protecting, supporting, and advancing the women who work for state, who have come for the same reasons as their male colleagues. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I think is so powerful about this having been done as an open letter is that it creates the space for all of the women who signed and really countless additional women who have uh, aligned themselves with the letter since then to come forward and tell their own stories. And I think we see with that Ambassador Gina Abercrombie Wynn Stanley, who has spoken eloquently on this topic, Ambassador Leslie Bassett, who likewise has shared her really important contributions on this issue, Ambassador Nina Hashigian, who has also shared stories. All of these women's stories matter. It doesn't matter if your first name is ambassador. We also have junior women. You know, it's really a lot harder for junior folks to come forward, especially those who are still in government, and I applaud them for doing so. But we want to make sure that every woman who has a story can come forward and do so on her own terms and in her own voice. So we have seen, I mean, this is really kind of letting a thousand flowers bloom because we've seen 
people like Carmen Middleton, who was the number four at CIA, speak really beautifully about this in the cipher brief about what this means in the intelligence community and others elsewhere now in private industry about what it means for them in their respective spaces. Dr. Nora Bensahel also penned a really beautiful piece on this for War on the Rock. So one response to this has been uh, this flood of of narrative and truth and experience that has come forward. We have sought to make space for the stories of women. Mm -hmm. And this is a time when women need to tell their stories and they need to be heard. We have seen good attention from the Hill. Um, I would like to see bipartisan attention. This is, to my mind, an issue that should not be a political one. Uh, we'd love to see leadership on both sides of the aisle on this issue. There's some space for that. But the Hill has been engaged. Mm-hmm. We've had, all of us, a lot of conversations about heads of think tanks who've come forward with questions, senior academics who want to know how to do better. This has also launched a series of quiet conversations one-on-one with our trusted male colleagues. Jake Sullivan came forward in a beautiful piece talking about his own reflections about how to be more inclusive. Some of this will take time and it is about conversations built on trust. And some of this is really giving the national security community a much needed kick in the pants, right? There's more we can do. We can hire more counselors, more mental health practitioners. We can do things to reduce the backlog and the wait time so that women don't have to sit alongside uh, those they've accused for extended periods of time. There is low-hanging fruit on this, and then there's there's stuff that's going to take some time. But there is room for everyone to lead on this in their own way, regardless of where they sit or what their rank is. And I think I wanted to just be clear that when I mentioned ambassadors, I do think it is not easier, but it is somewhat easier to come forward if you are an ambassador or if you're a high-ranking person. But to some degree, this is about nurturing the upcoming generation of potential ambassadors of potential, you know, fourth to the top at the CIA, you're looking at what does it mean to nurture a class of women and an in-between class and looking at what does this mean for the future and and how we can go forward. Unfortunately, we are at time. This conversation, I think, will be ongoing. And Jenna, I would love to have you back. Uh, I've had as my guests Jenna Benihuda, the founder of the Women's Foreign Policy Network, and Emily Tamkin. And this has been Sarah Wildman for the ER. You've been listening to Foreign Policy's The ER Podcast. I'm Sarah Wildman, and I've been your host. The podcast is produced by Shelby Bostead. For more information about foreign policy and to subscribe to The ER, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.